Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is episode 93. We are covering September 2021. My name is Colin Yeo and I am joined as ever by CJ McKinney, my colleague. So this time we are going through some changes to the immigration rules. There's a, a, a sort of huge statement of changes dropped. We're not going to cover it in too much detail, but we're going to go over some of the highlights. Um, we've got some other news around work and student visas. We've got something on deprivation and citizenship. And well, we've got two things in fact to cover. And we're going to review some new case law on asylum, talk about why the Home Office is conceding so many appeals, and end on EU citizens' rights and the inevitable coronavirus stuff. Um, sort of capital S for that. If you are listening and you're a lawyer and you would like to claim CPD points for listening to us, then we've got a kind of set of courses and you can sign up as a member. Head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. So those highlights to the statement of changes that was published on the 10th of September, but only coming into force from the 6th of October. It'll come up at different points during the episode because it's so wide ranging but let's just start off with what's changing on the points-based immigration system so work and study visas first of all endorsement for the global talent visa should be a bit easier to come by now the criteria have been loosened a bit in various specific ways which will be helpful for uh, individuals and also if you win specific awards you can get an automatic global talent visa with no endorsement at all there used to be 72 such prestigious prizes, as they're called. Uh, there are now, by my count, 145. So double the number of prizes that get you an automatic global talent visa. Also, the rules on visas for sports persons have been rewritten. Uh, there's no longer a temporary route and a long-term route. It's just one visa called International Sports Person. There's an article on the website uh, today by Glyn Lloyd uh, going into more detail. Uh, the fundamentals haven't changed. Uh, the key requirement is still you need an endorsement from the sport governing body. But there are some tweaks to the rules on settlement and things like that that are worth looking at. And looking ahead... The statement of changes tells us that there will be youth mobility visas for Iceland and for India in 2022, although only 3,000 places for Indians, and they'll have to have a degree or professional work experience, uh, which is not the case for anyone else on the youth mobility route. So Indians, uh, slightly tighter requirements for them. So those are my highlights uh, for the points-based immigration system. Anything, John Pace, to you? No, I think I, the, the youth mobility scheme stuff caught my um, caught my attention. I quite liked your your write-up where you pointed out there are 1,000 places for Iceland population 366000, and Actually, I really messed up there because I'm not going to do the number of zeros for India. <laughs> We've got 3,000 places for India. Population, 1.4 billion. I, I, yeah, the number of zeros there escapes me immediately. So we, we're quite quite a contrast. But as you say, you know, these are coming in in stages um, and we'll, we'll sort of flag things up as they, as they happen, basically. The government launched this points-based immigration system to great fanfare not 12 months ago, but it has already caved to industry lobbying to override this complete code, these normal rules, by grafting on temporary routes for HGV drivers and workers in the poultry industry. And there has been a lot of press coverage around this, uh, which may be the entire point of them doing it, because how many people are actually going to apply for these visas, which last a matter of weeks, uh, is still an open question. I mean, there's even speculation that the government wouldn't be devastated if the scheme just totally fell flat, because it would prove their point that loosening visa rules is not the solution to these labor shortages. I think Peter Foster in the FT uh, has been hearing some whisperings around that. What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect you know that some of the criticism of this um, sort of approach is the government is uh, doesn't understand that you can't turn on the tap of immigration that people have to want to come to the UK. I'm not sure that they don't understand that. If you see what I mean, I suspect this is more about headline management and being able to say, "Oh, we've done everything we reasonably could. We've pulled all the levers that were available to us." And um, it feels like the government sort of expects that some inconvenience, a bit of suffering, um, some crises is just kind of good for it rather than bad for it. And and they seem to be right, sadly, as well. So, you know, if, if there aren't enough turkeys for Christmas or something, then that's all somebody else's fault, not the government's fault. And that's why you need the government to be um, doing the things that it's doing, but doing them more. And, you know, it's kind of this this creating a crisis that you then offer the way out of but actually just make it worse and it's sort of downward spiral so yeah it, it, it's a bit it's a bit depressing and we well, I, I don't imagine that we're actually going to see much take up of these visas for the reasons you've said going back to the planned immigration system the points-based immigration system there is a document out recently on reforms to the sponsorship element so making it less of a faff to get a license to sponsor people for work visas essentially the document is called sponsorship roadmap and it talks mostly about stuff no one could object to i think less bureaucracy quicker decisions snazzier websites and stuff like that i think uh, one possible unintended consequence that Zena highlighted in her summary of the roadmap was there's going to be automated cross-checking of sponsors with companies house and HMRC and those checks are only going to be as good as the data that those organizations hold right yeah I'm sure the home office would never end up you know penalizing a whole bunch of people on the basis of automated checks that nobody really understands and depriving them of their you know right to be in the UK kicking them out without an appeal or, or anything like that that was that would be unprecedented obviously for for that to happen I, obviously heavy sarcasm alert that's exactly what happened with the sort of ETS scandal and all sorts of things that we've seen previously um so yeah that is a bit of a concern and you know, if it sets up some sort of presumption that you're lying which is kind of how the home office works then that's going to be deeply problematic. And you know, people are going to be on the defensive if, if they get caught out by that. Um, but as you say, I mean, broadly, it, it all looks sort of vaguely positive. Can't help thinking that you know, there's a lot going on here that's to, to mitigate the effects of the Home Office's own rules and policies and mindset. And that you know, without dealing with those things, then this really is just a kind of... Um, it's not very effective, should we say, and it's not it's not really going to make things substantially easier. But maybe that's kind of the point. Like with the HGV visas and the the poultry visas and so on, it's it's not necessarily about really making things easier and really making it possible for employers to bring in skilled workers and so on. It's actually about you know just doing the minimum and making it sound like that's what you're doing. Going back to your sarcasm, the nice thing about doing the podcast as opposed to doing everything in writing is that people can hopefully tell from the tone of your voice instead of you having to put it in brackets when it's just uh, words on a page. I might have to adopt a sort of sarcasm voice. <laughs> I was talking quite, quite, quite flat there. Maybe I'll, I'm going to work on that for our next podcast. Absolutely. Room for improvement. Uh, let's talk about deprivation of citizenship. Now, we know from the recent Supreme Court decision in the Shamima Begum case that it will be now quite difficult to appeal against a decision to strip someone of their British citizenship. 
on the grounds of national security. The role of the judge in those cases isn't to kind of probe into the merits of the decision, um, except to the extent that human rights are raised. We now have a decision from the upper tribunal saying that the same approach applies to cases outside the national security context. So where you're having your citizenship taken away on the basis of fraud, then there's also this quite limited role for the judge on appeal, except on human rights. So that decision, Ciceri, Deprivation of Citizenship Appeals Principles, 2021 UKUT 238 IAC. Colin Alison Harvey wrote up this case for us, some interesting detail in her post. She seems to suggest that the decision could be appealed and should be appealed. Any speculation on that? Yeah, I haven't heard anything. I would, certainly, I would expect the issue to go up because you know the case law that we've seen, as Alison says in a very good blog post, is, is all about this um, national security issue, section forty, subsection two. Whereas um, this case was all about the um, basically deception, previous deception, section forty, subsection three, um, and the, the tribunal has kind of applied the very restrictive approach to one to the other one. It'd be nice to see the tribunal occasionally being. You know, taking a risk and being more liberal than than seems necessary. They always seem to, to to err on the side of being being more restrictive. It's quite a big issue. We're likely to see more litigation on it. And in the meantime, Alison ends her post with some, I think, very helpful advice to to other lawyers. You know, if this doesn't go up to appeal, and I, I don't know whether it is going to appeal or not on that particular case, then somebody is surely going to take it up to appeal. Consider whether statelessness does arise in your case. Think about the implications for your client of of the do, two different appeals that might be required. So it's it's worth having a worth having a good look at that. And um, some of what she says, I think, um, leads in nicely to um, the next sort of issue that we were going to look at. So I'll sort of hand back over to you for that. Yeah, the next issue that's relevant also to deprivation cases is this limbo period that people who lose their citizenship face afterwards. So if you've lived in the UK for ages and ages, even if you lose your citizenship, you can't realistically be removed from the UK, even if you're no longer a citizen. In in a lot of cases, you'll be issued temporary, or you'll be issued permission to stay uh, after losing your citizenship. But the issue with this limbo period is how long it takes to get that permission after you've lost your citizenship. So the Home Office target is eight weeks, but we've actually got some hard data on this uh, passed to us by a kind reader who wishes to remain anonymous. And um, it's come from a freedom of information request. Um, and it shows that instead of eight weeks, uh, it takes eight months from the formal deprivation of citizenship order to, to getting your granted permission to stay. And during that eight month or longer period, people are basically undocumented, they can't work, and they're generally miserable. Yeah, and you know, can't get healthcare if they're ill, and you know, all the full sort of panoply of hostile environment policies can potentially take effect. Whether that's really going to have a, an impact in an individual case or depends on, on the person's circumstances, you know, whether an employer even finds out and so on, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly pretty serious to be sort of cast into this unlawful state when the Home Office has said that, oh, well, that's not really going to be uh, you know, more than eight weeks. And actually, it turns out to be a substantial period longer than that. Um, so it's certainly interesting. And perhaps that does factor into the deprivation appeals and whether it's reasonable for a person to um, to be deprived of their citizenship. Hmm. I think Alison suggested that the length of limbo was relevant. So it's good to have hard data on that. But let's then move to asylum. There's been a Supreme Court decision about the old 
process of sped up appeals known as deta- detained fast track. Uh, that procedure was declared unlawful a long time ago, uh, but the Supreme Court has now returned to it and confirmed that individual appeals that were decided under that unlawful process a long time ago now, those individual appeals were not necessarily unlawful themselves, despite the framework that they were decided under being unlawful. So go figure. Uh, the judgment TN Vietnam 2021 UKSC 41. Yeah, I have to say I wasn't that surprised by the outcome of this one, the the sort of quite carefully reasoned court of appeal decision, which this basically upholds. And it would be, it would have quite a uh, profound practical impact if suddenly everybody's appeals were reopened, who'd had them decided under the detained fast track with that happening automatically. But what this doesn't do is it doesn't stop people from raising unfairness in their individual cases. So if somebody does want to um, sort of try and get that reopened all these years later, then they are absolutely entitled to do so on an individual basis. But what this means is that there's no kind of automatic strikeout effectively of, of, of that appeal outcome from from years previously. Yeah, I think the Helen Bamber Foundation put out a statement. Um, they were involved in the case making exactly that point, that it d- doesn't rule out uh, trying to reopen the individual appeals. So that's important. Also, in asylum type stuff, uh, an upper tribunal judgment on humanitarian protection, which is a sort of a sister status to a proper uh, asylum. If you have Committed a serious crime, however, your humanitarian protection can be revoked, and it is not necessary to show as well that the person is a danger to the community. That is according to the Upper Tribunal in the case of Kakarash, Revocation of HP Respondent Policy, 2021 UK UT 235 IAC. Yeah, and the outcome is not that much of a surprise when it comes down to it. I haven't really got anything to add on this one. Let's move then to immigration appeals. The president of the first tier tribunal, Michael Clements, gave a talk recently at the Westminster Legal Policy Forum, uh, following yourself, Colin, I think. Among other things, he spoke about the online appeal process, uh, the newish procedure where everything's done digitally and the Home Office gets the skeleton arguments of the appellant at a much earlier stage. Let's hear what he had to say about that. But is it working? Well, it is. We are now seeing about 30% of the appeals being withdrawn at a fairly early stage by the Home Office. That is a good number. And that means that the appellant gets their relief at a far earlier stage. So there were some complaints about the system when it was first brought in, perhaps inevitably. Uh, But the president says that the Home Office are caving in on lots of appeals before they get anywhere near a hearing. Uh, And that's good, it seems to me. Yeah, it's only good for appellants. I mean, the, the complaints were really about the funding arrangements because the problem is if you have to put, if you if you have to front load a lot of the work and you're you only get paid for it if the appeal goes ahead, <laughs> then you know that that's a real problem for lawyers because you just you do a lot of work and you don't get any money for it at all. Um, and I, I still see that happening with some cases, I and mean, it doesn't happen a lot. But you know, even where a case has been reviewed by the Home Office. Um, several weeks earlier, and they've maintained their decision. You know, a new presenting officer gets it the day before the hearing. I've done all my work for prep. I've done my skeleton argument and so on. And then suddenly I'm notified that the appeal's not going ahead, so I don't get paid a penny. And it's really quite irritating. It's 
great for the client. It's just, you know, you'd wish that that would have happened a long time ago when you haven't put all the work into preparing the case. Um, so it does still happen. And there was a, there was another thing, and this is, this is really one for old timers, I think, when he was talking about the appeal success rate. And we, we didn't cover this in the blog post, but he talked about the very accepting culture um, in previous years, accepting of home office explanations, and that the tribunal judges were arguably you know, like the police in previous years, and some would say, you know, still to some extent, still today, uh, very accepting, sorry, magistrates being, and the police still very accepting of what the police says, uh, very accepting of what the Home Office says. And and that, that being an explanation for why the appeal success rate has gone up and why the Home Office is losing more cases. On the rights of EU residents, our next topic, the statement of changes we mentioned earlier has adjusted the rules on being joined by non-EU family members. So this has been difficult for some people. I think The Guardian have done several reports on the sort of plight of non-EU family members trying to join their sponsor. As of the 6th of October, however, uh, there are some changes. So it's possible for family members to apply to join their sponsor, even if the family member is already in the UK on a visit visa. So that's potentially helpful. And then for extended family members who are outside the UK, they've been having real problems getting family permits in recent months, um, the equivalent of a visa to enter the UK to join the sponsor, because the Home Office says, uh, oh, since the 30th of June, we actually don't have the legal power to issue these family permits anymore. Sorry, uh, even if you've got a pending application, uh, potentially. But the so the changes uh, to the rules mean that people in this situation can now get a letter saying that they would be entitled to a family permit if that was still a thing. Uh, and that may only go so far. But the Home Office has also said and this is in a letter to the campaign group, The Three Million, uh, that it's creating a concession that will give these extended family members their family permits after all, even though they think it's no longer possible within the rules. If they meet the criteria, uh, they'll get a family permit outside the rules, I suppose. So that is uh, good news for those extended family members. Yes, and the, the proof's in the pudding is whether, essentially, is whether the airlines will accept those documents and allow somebody to board because, and to be fair to the airlines, it, it's really complicated. They get fined £2,000 if they let somebody board who doesn't have the right documents for entering the UK. They tend to be quite cautious about that. And because this area of law is so complicated, you know, they get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes they let people on who they shouldn't let on, but sometimes they also stop people boarding who should be allowed to board. Um, and you know, this, this kind of complication isn't going to make their job any simpler, so we can expect perhaps more mistakes to be made. There's also been an upper tribunal case on the rights of Zambrano carers to mention briefly in the context of EU rights. Someone had argued, based on a very close reading of changes to the EEA regulations, that a primary carer of a British citizen should get to stay in the UK, even if the child's other parents could actually look after the child. So, to oversimplify, you wouldn't necessarily need to be a single mother to rely on Zambrano, right? Uh, that argument did not succeed, so we'll say no more about it, I suppose. But the tribunal thought it was important to report the judgment, so we're doing so as well. It's called uh, VELAD EEA Regulations Interpretation Reg 16.5 Zambrano 2021 UKUT 235 IAC. 
And finally then, coronavirus. There have been various concessions during the course of the pandemic, kind of letting various visa rules slide because of the situation. We've covered them extensively on the website at forward slash coronavirus. A few of these concessions have now been written into the immigration rules, but only a few uh, selectively. I think most importantly, there's a concession on how long EU citizens with pre-settled status are allowed to be out of the UK before they lose the right to upgrade to the full settled status. And that concession is being written into rules. Uh, and that's a really important issue, I think, to judge by how many people have read our article on that subject. Uh, there's also some other concessions um, being kind of incorporated into the rules for people on the sports person, skilled worker and tier one entrepreneur routes. Does it matter, Colin, whether this stuff is written into the proper immigration rules if they were concessions that reflected what the Home Office was doing anyway? It's a really good question that. And I, I, I don't really know. I mean, as a lawyer, I'd say it does. And I'd certainly rather things are clear, they're transparent, um, and also enforceable. Because the, the problem with this sort of policy-driven approach rather than law-driven approach is that if there are problems later, if you don't get what you were supposed to get from the Home Office, then it's much harder to go to court and to sort of demand your rights, essentially, if it's in some sort of ambiguously worded policy document that you can no longer access because it's disappeared off the Home Office website or whatever, as opposed to being properly written into the immigration rules in a kind of useful and enforceable way. So for, for a lot of people, it probably won't matter. And it seems like lawyers being overly fussy about process and stuff like that. But you know, our experience of the Home Office is that they they do excuse my language, but they do screw people over later at some point, either accidentally or deliberately or whatever it is. And therefore, having sort of easily defensible rights is actually very important when dealing with this this branch of government in particular. Finally, on virus news, you may remember a while back, there was this legal challenge taken by the charity JCWI to how the upper tribunal was deciding appeals during the pandemic. Uh, and basically the president's kind of emergency guidance leaned or directed judges too heavily towards deciding appeals without a hearing. And so that guidance was declared unlawful by the high court. And now the question has arisen, well, okay, what happens to all the appeals that were rejected under that unlawful system? Surely they now get reopened. But if you were paying attention to what we said about the Supreme Court case earlier, about detained fast track, uh, you may not be surprised to learn that's not the approach. Um, and the tribunal says no, no automatic reopening of those cases. It depends on the individual situation. Was there unfairness in the individual case or not? There's no blanket rule that you get to have another crack at it, even if your case was decided under this unlawful process. So that decision, EP Albania Rule 34, decisions setting aside 2021 UKUT 233 IAC. Yeah, I think from memory, I think an appeal was being looked at in that case. But, you know, without sort of being closely involved, it's always extremely hard, possibly a bit unwise to, to speculate. But on the face of it, certainly that Supreme Court decision doesn't look helpful to those type of arguments. But the, you know, there could be some way of distinguishing it. It could be that the arguments are, are rather different. Um, so I guess we'll just sort of watch this space. And obviously, if, if something does happen, then we'll, we'll let people know um, when that does happen. Right, that's it from us for this month. I hope that's been helpful. And we'll be back next month with the next update.